In the astronomic system, the people are presented with two separate yet equally important groups, the stars which radiate and shine, and the planets which orbit around them. These are their stories. The Jodcast. Voted the world's favourite podcast from the University of Manchester. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Megan Argo and David Alt. The Jodcast. March issue. Hello and welcome to the March issue of the Jodcast. Stuart's currently gallivanting around the world. I think he's in Trieste at the moment. So you've just got me to present the show this month, I'm afraid. On this month's show, though, we have news of a survey that you can take to tell us how we can make the Jodcast better. Stuart and Ian have been at the Astrofest in Kensington, and they've been talking to contributors and exhibitors and random people that they could badger into giving an interview. And we'll have the highlights from that a little bit later on. We've got an interview with Siska Markwick-Kemper, who studies dust in the interstellar medium. And, of course, we've got the night sky and Ask an Astronomer. But now, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Ulysses spots solar outburst, a new theory may explain dark galaxies, and Rosetta prepares for a Mars encounter. On its third pass over the solar south pole at the end of last year, observations made by the Ulysses spacecraft have produced some surprises. The craft, a joint ESA-NASA mission, detected some very strong polar outbursts, despite the Sun being near to the minimum of its 11-year cycle of activity. Outbursts of charged particles have recently been seen from the equatorial regions, which have been picked up by near-Earth satellites and ground-based observations, but similar increases in radiation were detected by the instruments on Ulysses, currently over the Sun's south pole. The probe also picked up events of this kind during its last polar pass in the year 2001, close to solar maximum. But such energetic events were not expected to be seen at solar minimum. It is uncertain how the charged particles get from the equatorial regions to the poles. Charged particles have to follow magnetic field lines, and the magnetic field pattern of the Sun near solar minimum ought to make it much more difficult for the particles to move in latitude, said Richard Marsden, ESA's Ulysses Project scientist. This announcement coincides with the start of International Heliophysical Year, 50 years after the International Geophysical Year helped us to better understand our own planet. Over the next 12 months, many scientific collaborations and public events have been organised, with the aim of understanding the effects of the sun and the solar wind throughout the solar system. This solar wind, a stream of charged particles which constantly flows from the sun, affects us here on Earth, but it also affects the other planets. This wind, although usually not a problem, can damage planetary atmospheres, affect communications and harm satellites. Details of public events being organised throughout the year can be found on the International Heliophysical Years Project website. A new theory attempts to explain the origin of a class of galaxies known as the dwarf spheroidals. These galaxies are much smaller than our own Milky Way and are incredibly faint, containing very few stars and almost no gas. A typical spiral galaxy contains a few hundred billion stars. Ordinary dwarf galaxies might contain a few billion stars, while these dwarf spheroidals contain only around a million stars, 
they are found orbiting the Milky Way and the nearby Andromeda Galaxy, and are thought to exist around all large spiral galaxies, but are so faint that they can only be detected nearby and have not yet been discovered around more distant galaxies. It is thought that these faint galaxies have been stripped of their luminous matter, leaving just a few stars, and the dark matter halo which interacts only very weakly with normal matter. The origin of these galaxies is a mystery which may have now been solved. A team of cosmologists led by Lucio Meyer at the University of Zurich and Stelios Kazantzidis at Stanford University have conducted new simulations of galaxy formation where these dwarf spheroidals start out as normal dwarf galaxies. As they interact with a larger galaxy, such as the Milky Way, they are affected by several different effects. The stars are largely removed by the gravitational interaction with the larger galaxy through an effect known as tidal shocking. As the dwarf galaxy travelled in an orbit around the larger companion, radiation left over from the Big Bang first heated the gas which then allowed it to be removed through ram pressure, an effect which can be thought of as a sort of large-scale wind resistance. Numerical simulations, carried out by Mayer and his colleagues and published in the 15th February issue of Nature, could further help explain the lack of satellites seen around galaxies, compared to how many are predicted by theoretical calculations. On the 25th of February, the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft flew by Mars in the second of four critical gravity assists in its 10-year voyage to Comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. This manoeuvre saw Rosetta skimming past Mars at a height of only 250 kilometres in order to receive an orbital kick to help it on its way. On its way past, the spacecraft conducted observations of the Red Planet, primarily to help calibrate the instruments but also to gather data which will complement those gathered by ESA's Mars Express in a mini-coordinated observation campaign. Three days later, on February 28th, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft also underwent a gravity assist manoeuvre. The craft was launched 12 months ago and is on its way to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. It had a close approach with Jupiter to provide an increase in speed, although it will still be several years before it reaches the cold outer reaches of the solar system. During this flyby, and for a few weeks afterwards, an ultraviolet camera on board Rosetta will be used to observe Jupiter's aurora and the plasma torus that surrounds Io, one of Jupiter's largest moons, in a coordinated observing campaign with New Horizons. And finally, Saturday the 3rd of March sees a total lunar eclipse. The penumbral phase of the eclipse begins at 2018 Universal Time, while totality actually begins at 2244 Universal Time. Mid-eclipse occurs at 23.20 and ends at 23.57, and the Moon leaves the Earth's penumbral shadow at 02.23 Universal Time. The entire eclipse will be visible from Europe, Africa and Western Asia. In East Asia, the Moon will set during the eclipse, while those in the Americas will see the Moon rise partially eclipsed. Thanks, Megan. Now, I've had quite a few emails since we got started last year telling us a little bit about what people think of the Jodcast. But now here's Nick to give you news of the latest Jodcast invention. Hi, everybody. We have been producing the Jodcast for over a year, and we think we're doing a pretty good job. But we want to know what you think. 
Some of you have been kind enough to offer your suggestions and feedback via the website. Now there is a survey which you can fill in and tell us what you think about the Jodcast, what you like, what you don't like, how you think we can do our job better. If you go to the website www.jodcast.net, click on the survey form, fill in the questions, that'll be great. So please go to the website www.jodcast.net, click on the survey link, and fill it in. Now, the survey will be available from about the 14th of March. So it's not going to be immediately available, but halfway through the month, it should show up. And please fill it in. Let us know how we're doing. And you've got the opportunity to enter into a drawer to win a free Jodcast t-shirt. So please go to the survey, fill it in, and let us know how we're doing. Cheers. So just to remind you, the website address is www.jodcast.net. Thanks, Nick. Now, on the 9th and 10th of February, in Kensington Town Hall in London, in the United Kingdom, there was the European Astrofest, the Astronomy Festival 2007. This was the largest astronomy and space show of its kind in Europe and was organised by Astronomy Now magazine. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you probably are thinking, well, I couldn't be there, even though I'm interested in astronomy. But fear not. The Judcast was there in your place. Well, I wasn't, but Stuart and Ian were. And they went around talking to some of the various people that they could find. And we've got two little sections for you, talking to various people. And in this first section, well, here's Stuart to tell you all about it. OK, I'm here with Keith Cooper of Astronomy Now. Hello. Hello. Can you tell us what Astrofest is? Astrofest is uh, Europe's biggest astronomy and space um, exhibition and conference. It's held every year, February, Kensington Town Hall. Um, we get guest speakers from all over the world. Um, this year we've had um, Michael Mayer from NASA. We have dozens of exhibitors selling all sorts of telescopes and binoculars and things, and people come from all over the country um, to meet up here and listen to the speakers, buy telescopes and, and socialise, and it's just a, a great event. I know, I've been having a great time myself. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Astronomy Now magazine as well? Um, yes, Astronomy Now magazine was um, started in 1987 by Patrick Moore himself. Um, this is our 20th anniversary this year in April. Are you the editor? I'm, I am the editor, that's correct. I've been the editor since uh, December. And really we try just to have a great mix of uh, amateur astronomy, professional research, you know, the latest goings on in space from NASA, the Cassini, Mars rovers, things like that. Um, you know, for the astronomy enthusiast. So, Keith, can you tell us what's in Astronomy Now for March? In our March issue, we've got um, the headline on the cover is our colourful universe. Now, the universe pictures we see from Hubble and Spitzer and Chandra and things like that, really, really colourful. But is that true colour? Is that what it's really, really like? And our article looks into that by Dr Lucy Rogers. Um, our article looks into colour in astronomy, finds out um, how scientists colour code um, pictures to help tell us what is in the picture, what they're showing us. Obviously, uh, infrared images from Spitzer have to be false colour because we can't see infrared lights. Um, we've also got uh, reports on Comet McNaught, which uh, lit up the skies in January. Oh, it's fantastic Comet McNaught. It, it was amazing. We've got some fantastic images from readers and some reports. We've got an article on the Antikythera mechanism written by Dr Nick Collistrom. It's about a device, an ancient Greek device that 2,000 years ago was built to predict the solar and lunar eclipses and the Saros cycles and all those kind of things. Uh, and it was discovered in 1900 in a shipwreck. 
uh, off the Greek island of uh, Antikythera. And it's taken the last 107 years for scientists to understand how it works. And it's this amazingly sophisticated uh, Greek, ancient Greek device. Just uh, last year, uh, they released some new results with some uh, X-ray um, imaging and some computer tomography. And they're finally piecing together how all the gears work. And, and it's really amazing, sophisticated device from ancient Greece. It's astounding everybody, all the historians. Um, we got articles on how to make a moon mosaic with your digital camera, written by uh, our, our writer, Will Gator. Um, we got our regular night sky feature, which tells readers what's in the sky on, in, during March. Some nice um, graphics from Go your from illustrator. Greg. Yes, he, he really does well with the graphics, really easy to use. Uh, our focus this month, focus is the main part of the magazine, it's normally about 10 or 11 pages long, uh, and this month it's all about alien volcanoes, volcanoes on the moon, ancient volcanoes on the moon obviously, volcanoes on Mars, Venus, Earth, Io, cryovolcanoes on Titan. So they're the volcanoes which are actually made of ice? or vo- Ab- Absolutely, ice coming up from underneath the surface, and on Titan, um, that's what produces all the methane in the atmosphere. Um, and they think that the history of Titan there's been three major volcanic periods that produced all this methane at the moment we're just coming to the end of the third period and it's unlikely to be another period for a few billion years when the sun heats up and warms Titan yet again Uh, and rounding off the magazine we have our regular features society listings Ask Alan with Dr Alan Longstaff where he answers readers questions picture gallery and lots and lots of other great things Sounds good. And um, we'll hope our listeners go and check that out. Yep, available in all good news agents. Price £3.25. Very good. Thank you very much. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, with me now is Greg Smy Rumsby, who is a, an illustrator for Astronomy Now magazine. Indeed, correct. Can you tell us about what your job involves? Yes, um, basically, what I've got to try and do is put the sky into a manageable form. It's got to be easy to be understood by the basic amateur, but also useful to the more experienced uh, amateur astronomer as well. We've got a a whole sample of your illustrations, I think, in front of us. Yes. Um, Can you just go through a a couple of them? Well, for example, on the June issue of Astronomy Now, we have uh, um, the crash that shook Mercury to its core, which, of course, refers to the uh, building uh, uh, time of the solar system when planets were being formed. And what the illustrations is uh, desperately trying to show is the fact that Mercury has ended up with a very large core, uh, but a very small sort of silicate crust and mantle. Now, how can a planet that small have such a large core? Well, effectively, it's almost certain that it's, it was subjected to a massive, almost catastrophic impact when it was uh, shortly after it formed. And that ripped away much of the mantle and much of the crust, and poor old Mercury was left with a, a big core and much, much less building material around it. And what the illustration's doing is that moment of impact, that catastrophe, blowing it to pieces. So not only do I do the star maps, but I also do the sexy stuff as well. I know it's fantastic image. That How long would something like that take you to, to produce? Uh, probably about a day. A day, really, to try and get... I mean, part of this surface is real mercury, and I've sort of moulded it and bent it because mercury probably would have been a bit deformed in the impact, effectively. Right. And do you do you make, take care to take make sure there's a bit of physics and astronomy oh, kept yes. in there? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't like illustrations that are clearly walked away from the from the physics. It, it's, not, it's not a good way forward to make an illustration. <laughs> and how many illustrations do you produce a month for astronomy? Um, probably tasked to do at least one big one, and then there might be a couple of other things like posters for example we do do uh, issue an awful lot of posters um, I think one of the one of my biggest things is uh, the things like stars for example very large stars are often depicted as big suns mm. the famous sun that we've got the centre yep. of the solar system well that's not <laughs> what big stars actually look like stars like Betelgeuse uh, Betelgeuse for example which yep. is 
up to one and a half thousand times the diameter of our sun probably doesn't look like a big sun. It's a, a dark red because the energy at its uh, outer atmosphere is somewhat subdued compared to the amount of energy at its core which is pushing that out- atmosphere out. Well, what's it actually going to look like? Well, it isn't going to be a nice smooth surface yep. and it's probably very, very tenuous at the outside and highly disrupted by large magnetic fields that are rupturing it, almost pushing it out, mass ejections, uh, prominences which are probably buried below some of the gaseous envelope at very high temperatures, excited, double excited, all this type of stuff, and that's what a big star looks like. So there's a nice diagram, and I'm sorry that the listeners can't actually see it. But <laughs> There's a problem uh, with an audio uh, Or, obviously, the audio thing, but uh, hopefully my voice is describing <laughs> some of it. So that effectively, it's trying to put some of the physics back into an ordinary illustration. Yep. Well, uh, I must say, they're excellent illustrations, and people can check those out every month in Astronomy Now. Indeed, absolutely. Thanks very much for talking to us. No problem. <laughs> OK, I'm talking to Andy Newsom. You're from... You're from John Moores University. Thank you. And you work with the National Schools Observatory. I am the director of the National Schools Observatory ah. for my singles. Yes. For you. Can you tell us a little bit about what the National Schools Observatory is? Um, basically, we've got this rather nice two-metre telescope on the Palmer, the Liverpool telescope. It's a sort of five million pound toy, uh, which school kids also get to play with. It's all done through the internet, so they can, just like a professional astronomer, decide what they want to do. It gets sent out to the telescope. The telescope does it for them and then it gets sent back all through the internet and they can analyse it. So they can do their own science in the classroom, just like a professional astronomer with a £5 million telescope. That sounds amazing. I wish I had a £5 million telescope as a toy. Yeah, I rather <laughs> like doing it. It's, it's been, we spent about eight years setting it up, you know, working with teachers and trying things out in the classroom and so on. And um, it's been really good fun every second of the way. So it's totally robotic and does everything by itself? Yep, yep. We, we send it what we want it to do and then we go to bed. And during the night, it monitors the weather and keeps track of other telescopes and so on, and it decides from minute to minute what's the best thing to do next and gets on with it. Right. So is it just UK schools that can, can use that? At the moment, yeah, UK and Ireland schools can, can use this particular telescope, yeah. Okay. And lots of professional astronomers. It's a, you know, it's, it's a research instrument, so it's mixing the two together, which is quite exciting. Right. So how long, once, if, if you're a school and you, you have a proposal and you submit this request, how long before you get your observations made? Uh, typically, weather permitting, it's done that night. So cool. Yeah, you, you get it the next day. Sometimes we can't. There's the weather, there's the phase of the moon, there's, you know. I mean, you might, for example, want to um, observe a particular part of the moon at two different phases to see how the shadows change. Mm. So the first one might be done immediately, and then you might have to wait a week for the second one, but that's just physics, you know. Yep. So, you know, it, um, but if, if there's no reason not to, it's usually done that night. Is that free? It's now free, yes. The university, John Moore's University, is sponsoring UK and Irish schools, so they sign up and um, go for it. So how, how do you find out more? If you're a, a school that wants to get involved, how do you find out? Um, everything is on our vast website, uh, www.schoolsobservatory.org.uk, um, and you just go along there and click. Very good. We'll put a link to that in our show notes on the website as well. Okay, Andrew, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Carol Bryan, and I'm from Hampshire, and I'm a distance learning student. So why are you attending AstroFest? Um, I'm attending so that uh, I can help promote distance learning in whatever way I can. So you've, have you done lots of distance learning courses in astronomy then? I have. I've got the Certificate of Higher Education and I'm just doing the Diploma. Okay, so what, why do you like doing astronomy by distance learning? Uh, because it's convenient. I like the variety of courses and I can do it in my own time and at my own pace. And which bits have you found the most interesting so far? I must admit I like the ones where we do a little bit of practical work as well. 
Yeah, so do I. <laughs> I'm Ellen Strachan from the Royal Observatory Greenwich and National Maritime Museum. Okay, and why are you at AstroFest this year? I'm here at AstroFest to give everyone information about what they can do when they visit the observatory or maritime museum. Right, and one of the exciting things that's happening at Greenwich is the time and space um, exhibition. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, we have a new astronomy centre that's opening. It's going to have three new modern astronomy galleries. Um, and there's also a new state-of-the-art planetarium, the Peter Harrison Planetarium. It's got an Evans and Sutherland laser projector. It's the first one in the country. Um, but all our planetarium shows are still going to have a live presenter there as well. That's always good. I think planetarium shows with live presenters are always the best. Yep, I think so. <laughs> so and it's good because the London Planetarium closed last year, didn't it? For yeah, that, that's right. So I think we may be the only planetarium in London now. And um, what else is there to see at the Royal Greenwich Observatory if people want to visit? Um, well, at present we've got four new time galleries, and they have in them all the Harrison clocks. So those are the original clocks which were sent to work out longitude? Um, yes, yeah, made, made by Harrison, who, who won the longitude prize. Um, and you can see the Astronomer Royal's apartments there. And um, Does he still live in them? No. <laughs> No, no, Flamp said the first astronomer okay. Royal lived there. And you can see the shed where he actually had to do most of his astronomy as well and had all of his telescopes. Very good. Can you just tell us your website address? Um, the web address is www.nmm.ac.uk and then you need to click on the observatory link. OK, we'll put a link to that on our podcast show notes as well. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Sandra Voss from the Observatory Science Centre, Hesman Sioux. So why are you visiting um, AstroFest 2007? The Observatory Science Centre is also the former home of the Royal Greenwich Observatory and we have the uh, old telescopes from, from that. And so we do astronomy-related events and activities at the Science Centre as well as have our uh, interactive hands-on exhibits. And we also have an astronomy festival. It's really good to get involved with the astronomy side of things and come to AstroFest because there's so many people yep. here that get involved with that and we just want to, to say we're still there, we're still do you, here. Do you have operational telescopes? We do. We have four operational telescopes, and they're the 13-inch up to the 36-inch, so um, they're good. And we have open evenings, and we have, the, as I say, the Astronomy Festival, and we also have courses in astronomy as well. But it's nice, it's really good, and it's also good to meet people at Astros. It is. Uh, we, meet every, we meet loads of different people. Uh, the first time I came, I knew nobody, and now I know quite a few people, so it's good to get to know people again and see, see familiar faces. And also give and we bring we bring our um, exhibits here as well. Lots of people like to see the exhibits. Ah, these yours? Yep, yeah. This is all from the science centre. We have over ninety fully interactive hands-on exhibits at the centre as well. So it's great to come here to Astrofest and give a little bit different. Um, So and and it's good for the kids as well when they come. Saturday, I think we have a lot of kids here, so uh, they do interact with them, and and we we give a lot of brochures away of our events and activities. So that's why we like to come to Astrofest as well. And talking of your activities, I see that you have an open evening for the total lunar eclipse at the beginning of March. We do, yes, um, and hopefully we'll get a lot of people there. It's it's actually very good because of the timing. It's on a Saturday, which always (laughs) makes things very good for us. Very handy. So we. We can open um, before it starts and we can just carry on until it finishes. So, you know, we're, we're quite lucky that way. So, Excellent. And if you just want to give us a promo for your festival... 
We have the Hurstmansuit Astronomy Festival, which is in September, the 7th, 8th and 9th. It's the Astronomy Weekend, and you can come and camp under the backdrop of the uh, telescope domes. Wow. Uh, we've got open evenings on the Friday and the Saturday. We've got lectures all day Saturday. We've got trade stores. We've got all sorts of things going on on the Saturday. On the Sunday, it's more of a family activity fun day. We're hoping to have stormtroopers there again. And, and, uh, <laughs> I've seen some pictures on your stand of the, the stormtroopers interrogating people, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> they were fantastic. They used to, they, they'd march people through the car park. They'd interrogate people. And they really brought a smile to to a lot of kids' faces. Hopefully they'll come back again. Uh, there's raffles, there's all sorts of things. It's a fantastic weekend. Be a tent even as well. So where can people find out about that? They can find out about on our website, which is www.the-observatory.org, or you can phone the centre and book, or you can pick up an events and activities brochure, and that will give you all the details in there as well. So, website and brochures. Very good. We'll put a link to that in our show notes on our website as well. Fabulous. Thanks very much. Thanks for speaking to us. Thank you. More from Stuart a little bit later. Now it's time for Nick's interview. And to tell you all about it, who better than Nick himself? Most of us think of dust as a particularly annoying nuisance, something which has to be cleaned up or gotten out of the way. I spoke with Dr. Siska Markwick-Kemper from the University of Manchester about the study of dust in our universe. My main research topic is properties of dust particles in the interstellar medium, uh, in the space that uh, is present between the stars. Okay, so when you're talking about dust, are you talking about the same sort of stuff that I sweep out from underneath the bed, you know, Um, when we do spring cleaning? What is dust in an astrophysical sense? Well, it's it's, it's more comparable to what you find on the beach perhaps, than, uh, than what you find on your ba- bed. What's, what's on your bed is mostly organic. It's your own skin, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what you find on the beach is, um, uh, is silicates uh, and other minerals, uh, basically any, any sort of solid that we find on the earth, dirt, basically. And um, the sand grains on the beach very much resemble uh, the, pro- the properties of the dust grains that are found in, in, in space, except that the dust grains in space are a lot smaller than your typical grain of sand. So the composition is pretty much the same. Yes. It's made of the same stuff. Yes. What is that stuff? What is the dust made of? Well, the, the main component that, uh, that we're looking at in the mineralogical terms are, um, are silicates. So um, this is just your average rock. Um, if you pick up a rock outside, you know, or uh, or even glass, you know, a window that is silicates as well. So it's a very common material uh, on Earth. And other materials um, are are oxides, such as iron oxide, which we commonly know as just rust. Um, iron itself, metallic iron, that um, that is found as well. Other oxides um, are found. Also, we also look at ices, ice particles, because from our viewpoint, the uh, temperatures in, in space are low enough that ices do exist, and uh, in many ways they behave similarly to to dust grains. So, uh, so ices we look at as well. And then there are some some organic uh, particles such as uh, pHs, which are really just soot particles. Okay, yeah. let's go back a step. And uh, you mentioned silicates and ferrous compounds. Can you can you rattle off a few chemical formulas for us? I mean, uh... <laughs> well. Um, the main component, I would say, is olivine, which is Mg2SiO4, um, and you can replace the Mg, the magnesium uh, metals, in there by iron or calcium or whatever. 
the main component is the SiO4 um, component. That is what uh, makes silicate silicates. That is the main building block of silicates. The iron uh, or the uh, magnesium or iron or other metals you just throw in to make the um, electronic charge neutral. So uh, there's there's olivine, which is Mg2SiO4. There is uh, uh, pyroxene, which is MgSO3. Uh, and simply quartz, which is SiO2, which doesn't sound like SiO4 anymore, but it really is. But the oxygens are actually shared. So on average, each silicon has only two oxygens, but uh, it has really four, but they're sharing them with the neighboring silicons. Yeah, so those are the, those are all the types of silicates. And then there are things like carbonates. Are these the most common sort of uh, chemical compounds that we find in as interstellar dust? I would say silicates, yeah. The silicates. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do these relate to the stuff which falls out of the sky as, as uh, meteorites? Oh, well, that's very, very similar because the idea is actually that, um, um, so whatever sits in space, um, at some point, you know, when star formation um, uh, starts, you have a, a cloud from which the star forms. Uh, and um, while the majority of the material goes obviously into the star, there is this remnant cloud um, of material that goes into the planets and other particles that, that we find in, um, in, in the solar system, uh, for example. The solid state particles in there uh, basically form the building blocks for planets and uh, the remainder ends up in things like meteorites and asteroids. So yes, if we, if we look at meteorites, we, we know that this material is, originates from the interstellar medium and so does actually the entire planet Earth. There's been a lot of processing going on. So the entire Earth was molten during its formation, for example, and therefore has lost all memory of what has happened to it. And many meteorites have been molten or even vaporized uh, before they became uh, meteorites. But every now and then you'll find a particle in there which actually still carries the signature of its, um, of its life in the interstellar medium. And we call those a pre-solar grain. Generally, these pre-solar grains are, are found as part of interplanetary dust particles. So they're usually, well, they're often not sometimes also found in meteorites, but meteorites are already more processed than interplanetary dust particles. Interplanetary dust particles are really small and you collect them by, um, or one collects them by um, taking a, a plane high up in the atmosphere, really high, so you need military planes for this, and uh, equip them with uh, little strips on the wings that uh, allow you to collect dust particles from that high up. And um, the impact trajectory of the dust particles allows you to, to determine the origin of the uh, dust particles, whether they're cometary or whether they um, originate from uh, asteroids or something. And also, these are, these are taken back to the lab then and, and analyzed, and sometimes people find truly interstellar grains. But even the grains that, have, that are, are heavily processed in the solar system are interesting because many of the processes that occur in the solar system are similar to what, we inter what we're interested in uh, in space. Okay, so there's a difference between interplanetary dust, presumably dust that we find between the planets in yeah. our own solar system, which we collect with these high-flying yeah. aircraft predominantly, yeah. and interstellar medium dust. Yeah. So yes. how do you tell the difference between the two? What's the, what's the defining feature between interstellar medium dust and interplanetary dust? Well, the interstellar medium dust um, comes from a variety of sources. There's different uh, stars um, that contribute dust to the interstellar medium. So when a star dies, it, um, it actually becomes a bit like a sooting flame. 
and starts to produce little soot particles and, and silicate particles as well. And they get deposited into the ISM. But every star is different, and every star has a slightly different isotopic composition, depending on the type of star that we're looking at. So a supernova will produce a different isotopic signature than, for example, a nova or an HB star or whatever. So you can tell by looking at the isotopic signature from a grain where it comes from. So you can look, you can basically make an isotopic um, analysis. As it turns out, um, like I said before, all the material in the solar system is actually heavily processed. So that means that every atom pretty much at some point was vaporized and then back uh, and then solidified again back into grains. And this mean, means that the original birth cloud from which the solar system was formed uh, which had grains of all sorts of compositions, isotopic composition, is completely homogenized. It has a completely homogeneous isotopic composition. It's, so it's very, all the same. It's a very precise, yeah, it's a very precise on, you know, parts per thousand, you know, parts per million even, sometimes it's expressed that precise isotopic composition. Anything that deviates from this stands out like a sore thumb right. and is therefore interstellar. Doesn't mean that um, interstellar grains cannot have the exact isotopic composition of the solar system, but we will never spot them. But in general, when, when things have a different isotopic composition, we, we, we know that they're, uh, they were not processed in the solar system, so they still bear uh, the signature of their life in the interstellar medium. Yeah. What do missions like Stardust do for your research? Where this probe went out into the universe, collected some yeah. of this, some of this interplanetary stuff, mm-hmm. and brought it back. We actually could see it. So, what did that yeah. did that teach you? Anything new or something more? Well, the the Stardust mission, of course, the um, uh, the results are still pouring in, and it's it's hard to interpret where we stand with this right now. But the idea is that um, uh, Stardust was a mission that went to a, a comet, collected dust particles from the comet, and then on the way back also collected a few more uh, interstellar dust particles that were traveling through uh, the solar system under a certain angle. So it has two samples. It has this big sample of uh, cometary uh, grains and a few interstellar grains, which are actually not found yet. If you're interested in helping to find um, interstellar grains, then there is a, uh, a search on the web and you can download slices of the material and look for um, interstellar Dust grains is actually true. <laughs> it's a bit yeah. like SETI at home, but then uh, for Stardust, interstellar dust grains. Yeah. So you're actually looking for the little tracks of the of the yeah, particles yeah, hitting the, the yeah. gel or whatever it was. Yeah, it's aerogel, and the thing is that interstellar dust particles are tiny, uh, mm. and they only expect a few anyway, and uh, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of cuts that need to be evaluated for the presence of, um, of these dust grains. So, yeah, so they need... Um, I guess help because that it's not not possible to automate this. You need you need basically a human, a human to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, anyway, okay. the um, the cometary particles are much easier to find, and the idea is that comets are um, sort of containing pristine solar system materials, are relatively unprocessed. Uh, I think what we're learning right now, and things that have already been pointing to in that direction, is that comets may not be as unprocessed as we think. Uh, they might still contain quite a bit of processed material. But uh, I don't think the full uh, consensus has appeared from Stardust yet, so we're still waiting to see. Still waiting. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on the Jodcast. We wish you all the best for the future research. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. And that's not all from him for the moment, because here he is with Tim O'Brien, to answer your questions in Ask an Astronomer.
And now it's time for Ask an Astronomer, where you get to ask your questions to our very own tame astronomer here at Jodrell Bank Observatory, Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks very much again for coming along. No problem. So today's question is, if the moon's orbital period is one month, why are there two tides a day? Right, okay. Well, let's start with this, uh, this issue about the moon's orbital period being one month and there being tides every day. Of course, uh, yeah, the moon does go around the Earth once a month, um, but of course the Earth is spinning once a day. So if you imagine sitting on the sitting at a point on the Earth underneath the moon, you would sort of um, pass underneath it once a day, basically. So that's why there's a sort of daily variation rather than a monthly variation, mm -hmm. first of all. Yep. Um, and then perhaps the slightly trickier question is, why are there two tides every day <laughs> uh, rather than, say, one tide? Now... Okay, so the tides, remember what the tides are, they're, they're, they're basically something we think about in terms of the sea uh, and the height, the, 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 the level of the sea changing um, during the day and it rises and falls. And it basically is due to the gravity of the moon. And the way to understand it really is to think about the force of gravity due to the moon on the Earth. Okay, now the force of gravity actually changes with the distance. So the farther away you are from the moon, the, 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 the weaker the gravity would be. And it actually goes down as the square of the distance. So if you were, you know, ten times farther away, it would be ten times ten times weaker, so a hundred times weaker. So if you think about it, if you're on the side of the Earth that's closest to the moon at a given instant, you'd feel a certain force of gravity due to the moon. If you were on the opposite side of the Earth from the moon, you'd feel a, a much weaker force of gravity. Now, what we tend to do is, you, one way to think about it is to think about the the force relative to the centre of the Earth now, to sort of imagine the force relative to the centre of the Earth. So you've sort of got this strong force pulling you towards the moon on, on the side nearest the moon. You've got this much uh, weaker force pulling you towards the moon on the far side of the Earth. Um, and in the middle of the Earth, you'd have this sort of force that was somewhere in between. So relative to, to the centre of the Earth... In fact, you've got you're basically going to find there's a force that's going to be pushing towards the moon uh, on the side nearest the moon, and a force pushing away from the moon a bit on the far side of the of the Earth. Does that make sense? The net force you'd feel is sort of pulling you towards the moon on one side and, and, and away from the moon relative to what the the force that the centre of the Earth feels. That's the key, though, isn't it? It's relative to the centre of the Earth because the moon's pulling everything yeah, towards yeah. itself, yeah, yeah. ever yeah. so slightly, yeah. but yeah. we're talking about forces yeah. relative to the centre yeah. of the Earth. So, then, so the net effect, actually, is that it's sort of like the Earth being stretched into a sort of egg-like shape because of that effect. Mm. So if you can imagine, because it's pulling more on one side than it is on the other side, so you get this sort of um, this stretching effect. And so because the water's more flexible than the rock, basically, right. that sort of stretching is seen more obviously in the water than it would be in the rock. So it is actually an effect that's seen in the rock as well, but more obviously in the water. Right. Now, I don't know whether that makes any sense or not, but that's the, that's the, that's the way you've got to think about it. Probably needs a picture, and maybe we should put that picture on our website. I think we'll try and all arrange for a picture to be put on the way of you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, so that's basically the point, is that there's these two bulges then um, of water, one on the side nearest the moon and one on the side farthest away from the moon. And, and basically they effectively travel around the Earth because the Earth is sort of spinning underneath the moon. And in fact, that, that effect actually causes the moon's orbit to increase in size. So gradually the moon's orbit is increasing in size and it actually also causes the, uh, the Earth's rotation to slow down. So gradually the, Earth, the Earth's rotation is slowing down because of the sort of drag force on, on, the, on these bulges that are sort of travelling around, travelling around the Earth. 
Um, no, I mean one reason one reason for just picking this question actually to, to to answer this time is because just last week we had an inquiry from the local news regarding a story that had been put out by uh, by a local company or a company in the northwest of England here um, called BAE Systems, which are based in a, in a in a town called Preston, up in Lancashire. Um, and they build uh, fighter aircraft there, and in fact they're building a, something called the Eurofighter or the, ty- the Typhoon um, fighter aircraft. And it turned out that the story that they'd, they'd released about this, that the, 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 the TV were interested in, um, was that the fact that they had to spend about two and a half million pounds on correcting for the moon's tidal forces on their factory. While they were making, while they were making their fighter aircraft, what were they using that was so sensitive that it had to be corrected? To well, the moon's location. Yeah, apparently. Well, apparently, the story is <laughs> what we're um, told. Apparently, what we're told by BAE <laughs> Systems um, is that they're building these fighter aircraft, which are 15 meters long, um, and they try and build them incredibly accurately to no more than the. They've got to be true to the correct shape to no more than the thickness of a matchstick is the quote that they use. Uh, and that basically uh, helps them fly the aircraft, helps them trim the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And actually, at some level, it, you know, they they quote how much fuel that saves them if they if they if they if they build the aircraft that accurately. And the problem is that the tidal forces were actually uh, shifting the the rig around that they build these that they set this that they set everything up on and get everything aligned properly. It was shifting it around by by a few millimeters basically. Right. And that was enough to throw out all their alignment. Mm-hmm. So basically, they've had to build these. Uh, some sort of concrete rafts that effectively float um, together with um, uh, various laser um, devices that, that, that allow them to measure the alignment and correct for this uh, movement, which is basically, you know, this sort of few millimetre movement as the tides go past sort of twice a day. So their rig isn't nailed to the surface of the Earth. It, it essentially is floating it's on some something. Sort of free, yeah. I'm so the, sure. the moon pulls the whole rig yeah, yeah, end while yeah, it's yeah, floating and, on at the same and, time. And they can measure it and, and, correct for the, and correct for those effects. Well, it's nice to know that uh, the BAE systems are trying to minimise their fuel expenditure for... I'm sure they've got reasons other than climate change. I'm sure they <laughs> Okay, so is that is that is that fine? Does that Excellent. make sense? Well, I think we will. We'll put we'll put a nice we'll put a nice diagram on the website to yes. help that explanation because it is a it is, it is a fairly visual thing. Yes, yes. Thank you very much, Tim. That's brilliant. Okay. And if you have any other questions for Dr. Tim O'Brien, please submit them via the website www.jodcast.net. Thanks, Nick and Tim. And now we go back to Astrofest. Stuart and Ian. Still there with their mics. And, shock horror, we have documentary evidence. Proof that we have listeners. Here we are. OK, um, this is Ian Morrison at Astrofest in London in February 2007. Um, I've just uh, come across Peter Wise. He's the manager director of a new company called Cape New Wise, which I suspect has some link with South Africa which has produced an innovative new type of telescope that is currently being built in a wonderful uh, technical centre in North Wales. Uh, What's special about your particular design of telescope? What makes it a bit different from all the others that we see around us? At Astrofest here, I met probably about 100 different telescopes on show. What's special about yours? Well, I made a a 24-inch Dobsonian, and although it it gave absolutely wonderful images, the disadvantage is climbing up a 12-foot ladder, and it's not very <laughs> much fun on a cold winter's night when you can't see a perishing thing. There's nothing to grab hold of except the telescope when you start to fall down. And um, 
I decided that maybe there's got to be a better option. So uh, I've got an optical design program and worked on making a much shorter version of the Newtonian telescope, which would be user-friendly and all the other things that that we come to love in a telescope. So I made one that's about half the length of a normal Newtonian, but it also had a flat field and was also easy to make because all the surfaces, the optical surfaces, are flat or spherical. And um, it jolly well works. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly about half the length, I think, of the Newtonians we see here, uh, and that has a, a rather long tube for the focal ratio. Yours is about half the size, as you've just said, and the eyepiece, I think, comes to a very nice position to enable you to observe nice and easily. Um, so you mentioned several sizes, 8 inches and 12, probably for the amateur market, but I gather you've got quite a large telescope at Nottingham University, and maybe there's a chance of getting one of that sort of size at Cardiff. Tell me about that. That's right. We made uh, a 20-inch or 500-millimetre to the initiated um, telescope for Nottingham Trent University. The order was placed around March last year, and we were able to deliver around October time and it's now in use by students, and the the university is extremely delighted with it. Uh, They reckon they got extremely good value for the whole project. Um, For £150,000, they got uh, a whole observatory, dome, and telescope, whereas normally for £150,000, they get a grey box that sits on the lab bench and looks pretty rubbish. No, that's, that's good. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Peter, and I wish your company all the very best. It's nice. It's just down the road in Wales from us, and uh, maybe we'll have one of your telescopes at Jodrell Bank sometime in the future. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, just let me know what size you want. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Thank you. Yes, uh, my name is Juliana, and I come from Poland. And why are you visiting European AstroFest? Uh, I am a little interested in astronomy, uh, usually origin of our universe, more cosmology, and that's why I came to to see uh, how develop this knowledge, this science, this part of science. And have you been here since Friday? Uh, no, just only today. I can, yeah. Are you going to some of the talks? Yes, yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, have a good time. Yeah, very good time. Very nice, very interesting, very kind people. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Bob Meisen, I'm the coordinator of the British Astronomical Association's Campaign for Dark Skies. So could you just tell us a little bit about the Campaign for Dark Skies? What does it involve? Yeah, the campaign was founded in 1989 by a group of concerned astronomers who were a bit worried about the sort of rising tide of waste light in the sky, which has more or less taken away the stars from 90% of the UK population since uh, about 1950. And the whole point of the campaign is not to switch people's lights off, obviously. We're not mad. Uh, It is simply to put light where it is needed, i.e. on the ground or on the building or even on the radio telescope, without shining it all over the night sky and into neighbouring premises where it causes a lot of problems. 
Yeah, and it seems to be a growing growing problem over the years. It's getting worse and worse, in, as far as I see. Anyway. Well, I'm 60 years old. When I was a little boy in the east end of London, I saw plenty of stars. I go back there now to visit relatives. There are no stars, I mean no stars, in the sky from where I used to live. I learnt my stars in a little town in Shropshire called Newport when I was a teenager. Go back there now. There are very few stars in the sky. Nationwide problem getting worse all the time. So what, do, what practical um, things do the Campaign for Dark Skies do about this problem? Uh, we talk to lighting manufacturers, we talk to environmental campaigners, and most importantly, we talk to local and central government. We have been instrumental in getting a small amount of legislation about light intrusion into windows, which is the Clean Neighbourhoods and Environment Act. That was um, just the other year. 2005, yes. Unfortunately, it has ridiculous exclusions, such as transport premises, so your neighbour is not allowed to shine a thousand watts through your bedroom window all night, but your local bus station is. Loony or what? <laughs> and you just mentioned the thousand watt light bulbs. Now, I think I heard a statistic that the, the most powerful lighthouse in the UK is 500 watts? The most powerful lighthouse in Britain is the Farne Islands. It's called the Longstone Light. It is 1,000 watts. And people are using half of this on their back walls. Um, it doesn't frighten away burglars. It simply gives them plenty of light to sort out their tools at 3 o'clock in the morning when the police are fast asleep and so is everybody else. I guess one slight good thing about light pollution is that it's easy to fix if we care about it. You can turn off your lights. It is a problem that is easily solved. And it's not a question of turning off lights, it's a question of angling them where they are needed, although it cannot be denied that there are many, many unnecessary lights in this country. Uh, but that, of course, is a subject of uh, judgment and debate. Uh, but uh, the amount of light that is wasted in this country outside the premises to be illuminated uh, by floodlighting buildings, etc., with inefficient lights is frightening. It really is. Right, and you've also, in collaboration with Philips, I think it is, you've produced a, a dark sky map of the UK. Yeah, the Philips Dark Skies Map of the UK um, is a joint effort between Philips Maps Company and the Campaign for Dark Skies, and it shows the best places in the UK to go if you want to see stars. But, of course, we can't uh, produce a clear skies map because we live in a rather cloudy country and never quite predict where they're going to be. But certainly the Dark Skies Map <laughs> tells you where the best and worst lighting conditions are. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Um, we'll put a link to your website on our show notes on, the, on our website as well. You're very welcome. www.darkskies.org. Thank you. Right, Robin Scatchell, Society for Popular Astronomy. I'm the Vice President. Can you tell us a little bit about the Society for Popular Astronomy? What does it do? Right, the Society for Popular Astronomy is Britain's largest astronomical society. We've got over 3,000 members, and we've been going since 1953. Uh, we started out life as a junior astronomical society, but these days we've widened our appeal to cover absolutely everybody who's interested in astronomy and who's a beginner to astronomy. We've got several advisory sections. We've got a telescope advisor, we've got a phot photography advisor, uh, somebody who uh, will help out with GCSE coursework, that sort of thing. And also um, we've got our magazine, Popular Astronomy, which comes out four times a year. We've got news circulars, which come out six times a year. And they give the sort of stuff that you don't normally get, which is all about observing and the things that people have actually seen in the sky and that's something we're very proud of actually we get a information out to people uh, in fact we have email alerts for people as well who uh, want to know what's going on and Comet McNaught for example when that came around we only had a few days notice about that one we got out an email circular and people were able to go out into the sky uh, out into the street and observe it straight away Excellent, so if people want to join how do they go about doing that? 
Well, look at our website, www.popastro.com, and that will tell you we, 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 our subscription rate is very low. It's only £15 a year, and you get enormous value from that. Also, in our website, there's a very good forum where people can ask questions about astronomy, so well worth looking at the website. I must say, I've looked at the forum a few times myself. <laughs> well, yes, it's, it, came, it contains a lot of, of general information, and also people can ask questions there, which they might be a bit embarrassed to ask elsewhere. So what you always want to know about about astronomy but we're afraid to ask very good well robin thank you very much for talking to us welcome so okay we're very lucky we've actually got some jodcast listeners they do exist um and we've clobbered them in a corner at astrofest next to albert einstein um so just just tell us your names and where you're from uh, mine's simon i'm from andover i'm a member of the basingstoke astronomical society uh, my name's Craig and I'm from Bracknell. Very good. And why are you here at AstroFest? Um, to meet you and to, <laughs> to appear on the Jodcast, obviously. I'm sure you're not here for that. Um, to have a look around at some of the equipment, uh, it's a good place to get together and, and uh, meet some of the other astronomers as well. Yep. well. I've just bought my first telescope, so I'm looking for some extra bits and pieces. Really? To... What have you bought? Uh, I bought one of the Next Star 130 telescopes, recommended ah. by Ian Morrison. Yes, he did a review last year, didn't he, on that? That's right, yeah, I saw it in, uh, on, on his website, or on the website link, at any rate. So we'll blame uh, him then? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'm now uh, nearly 300 quid poorer, but uh, it's very good value. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we've got up with Andrew Newsom again, um, because we missed something out last time, we forgot to talk about MAD, can you tell us what MAD is? MAD, yes, the Merseyside Astronomy Day, MAD 2 this year. Um, it's a day we organise every year now, at Spaceport, which is a new um, astronomy visitor centre on the banks of the Mersey. Um, and the idea is we get some professional astronomers in to talk about what they're actually doing, so to talk about their research to people who don't necessarily know already know about it. So what sort of things will be covered this time? Well, we've got anything from um, gamma-ray bursts, we've got a talk from uh, Professor John Brown from Glasgow, the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, he's going to be talking about some uh, observing of the sun. We've got a talk on stars from Maurizio Solaris from JMU. We've got a whole range Um Another talk about giant telescopes from uh, Susie Ramsey from Edinburgh. So the whole thing. Very good. And you said that was at Spaceport? It's at Spaceport, yes, which is in the Seacombe Ferry Terminal on the banks of the Mersey. OK, and do people have to book? Uh, it's probably advisable to book because it sold out last year. Um, and you can go along to the, to the website to do that. So www.astro.livjm.ac.uk slash mad. <laughs> we'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Splendid. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart and Ian. I think that must be the most fun segment I've ever had to edit, so thank you very much for that. Now, Ian's not finished yet, because here's what to look out for in the March night sky. Let's have a look at what we might be able to see in the night sky this March. We'll start with the stars. In the early evening, the southern sky has that wonderful constellation of Orion the Hunter, high in the south. Up to its right is Taurus the Bull, and at the very tip, really at about 80 degrees elevation, for those of us in England, is a little group of stars, the cluster called the Pleiades, a lovely object to observe with binoculars. Down to the lower left of Orion is the brightest star we see in the northern sky, Sirius. As it's low down, it very often seems to twinkle quite dramatically and even produces coloured lights. It's, it's because of the refractive effect of the low atmosphere. 
So we often get people ringing up and saying they've seen this light flashing in the sky with different colours. Well, often it's serious. Up to the left of Iran is the constellation of Gemini, which is rising and becomes due south, let's say about 10 o'clock. And of course now there are other constellations coming into view in the late evening. In particular, over to the left and down a bit from Gemini is the constellation of Leo the Lion. It's rather like the rampant lions on their haunches in Trafalgar Square and the head, the mane, faces towards Gemini. In between is a fairly empty part of the sky is the constellation of Cancer. But with binoculars you can pick up a lovely cluster there, quite a wide cluster, called the Beehive Cluster, or sometimes Prisopy. In fact, at the moment, as we'll see later, between Cancer and Leo, there's an interloper. But more of that a little bit later on. High above Leo is the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, one of the best-known constellations in the sky. In fact, the part that most of see and spot is, in fact, the plough. The Americans call it the Big Dipper after a big ladle. The two right-hand stars of the plough are known as the pointers because they point up, or sideways, whatever, to the pole star. So that's how you can find north if it's clear night in the northern hemisphere. So, in fact, we have a very lovely sweep of stars in the sky at this time of year. It's well worth taking some binoculars and having a look. So next, let's have a look at the planets. <laughs> there are really two planets that we can sensibly observe at the moment. The first is Venus. If you have a clear evening after the sunset, you cannot fail to see Venus in the western sky. It's totally dominating the sky there. It has a magnitude of minus four, which is pretty bright. It will actually stay at that magnitude for quite a few months. As Venus orbits the sun, so as it gets nearer to us, less of its disk is illuminated. We get phases rather like the moon. But because it's actually getting nearer, the apparent reflecting area stays pretty much constant. And so for quite a few months, Venus stays at a magnitude very close to minus four. It was the fact that Venus showed phases, and particularly nearly full phases, that Galileo realised that it must orbit the Sun, and hence the Copernican theory of our solar system must be right. The other planet I've alluded to earlier is the planet Saturn, and it lies between Cancer and Leo, very close to the constellation of Boundary. It's about seven to eight degrees up to the right of the brightest star in Leo, which is called Regulus. It looks slightly yellow in colour. If you have a small telescope, it's well worth observing. You do see the lovely rings. Perhaps Saturn is one of the most beautiful sights in the whole of the heavens. At the moment, those rings are getting rather tighter. In a couple of years, they'll be edge-on and we'll barely see them at all. At the moment, I think the angle is about 13 to 15 degrees, slowly reducing. So, in fact, Saturn won't be quite as bright in the next few years as it has been in the past few when the rings have been wide open. A small telescope will easily show Saturn's largest moon, Titan. And perhaps an 8-inch telescope will show you another four as well, if you have a dark sky. So it's a lovely planet to observe. Saturn is also involved in one of the highlights this month, particularly if you have a small telescope. On the evening of March the 2nd, if you live on the eastern side of England, 
you'll actually see the moon pass in front of Saturn. We say that Saturn is occulted by the moon. Anywhere from a line from Edinburgh through Leeds, London to Eastbourne on the south coast should actually see Saturn disappear behind the moon's limb. If you live on a line to the east of Glasgow, Liverpool, Bristol and the south coast near Portsmouth, then you'll actually see part of Saturn being occulted. But sadly, to the rest of that, you'll just see Saturn apparently slide by the moon. Although, of course, it's the moon that's passing in front between us and Saturn. So that's a nice thing to observe. Perhaps even with binoculars, you could see that very, very close passage of Saturn and the moon. The next night on the 3rd of March is perhaps the highlight of this month, and probably for several months. We'll have if it's clear to see, a total eclipse of the moon. They don't happen very often. What happens is the moon will pass, firstly, through the penumbra of the Earth's shadow and then through the umbra, when, theoretically, no light at all should reach it from the sun. But we can usually see it. And the reason is because light can refract round through the Earth's atmosphere and fall onto the moon. If you were at the moon, looking back at the Earth, you'd see the Earth dark with a rim of light around it, our atmosphere. That rim would look very reddish, because as we look through a lot of atmosphere, as you know, the sun appears to be reddish in colour. The sunlight is red. The blue light's been scattered by particles and aerosols in the atmosphere, which is why the sky above us is blue. So the light that will reach the moon during totality, is very reddish in colour. And the moon can look a lovely reddish ochre colour. Now, of course, that does mean that a fair bit of light's got to go through the atmosphere. If there's been a major volcanic eruption in the previous year or so, there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere, and very little light passes through. And, in fact, the moon can be rather dull, dark grey colour. Now, happily, we haven't had any major eruptions on the Earth's surface for several years, so this March, the atmosphere should be really quite clear, and so I'm hoping for a lovely view of the Moon. The Moon moves into the Earth's penumbra at about quarter past eight. It goes into the umbra, where it's totally eclipsed, at 10.44 in the evening. It comes out at nearly one o'clock, and finally comes out of the whole of the Earth's shadow at 02.25 in the morning. The mid-eclipse is at about 20 past midnight. So it is well worth staying up to have a look at what can be one of the most beautiful sights we ever see in the sky. Good hunting. Thanks, Ian. And as he mentioned, there is going to be a total lunar eclipse visible from most of the planet, except for Alaska, eastern Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand and the Pacific. And that's on Saturday the 3rd of March. So I'll just recap those times for you. It starts at about quarter past eight universal time, or GMT, and lasts until 25 past two on the morning of the 4th of March. If you're in the UK and want to view the lunar eclipse, you've got a few options. Obviously, you can go outside and look up at the moon. But if you're in or near East Sussex, as we mentioned in that first AstroFest segment, the Hurstman Sioux Observatory Science Centre is having an event. 
Or, if you're anywhere near Jodrell Bank, the visitor centre there also has an event going on. And for details and tickets, call the visitor centre on 01477 571 339. That's 01477 571 339. We'll put links to more information, of course, about how you can observe at home in the show notes. And in the show notes, of course, we'll have all of the websites, all of the details that you need from the AstroFest and for everything else that's been on the programme. And also, from the show notes and on the website, you've got our survey form from the 14th of March, with any luck, and also just our usual email form, where if you have any comments or questions for Tim then send us an email. You'll find it all at the Jodcast website. That's www.jodcast.net. Now, coming all the way from Trieste, here's Stuart with a roundup of all of the podcasts he's been listening to in recent weeks. Thanks, Dave. Now, I've been on several long train journeys over the past month, and that's given me plenty of opportunity to listen to the latest astronomy podcasts. So what's caught my attention over the past few weeks? Well, first up is The Bad Astronomer and a new video podcast called Q&BA. The Bad Astronomer, a.k.a. Dr. Phil Plate from Sonoma State University in California, aims to answer astronomy questions sent in by listeners. Sound familiar? Well, it's a bit like a speeded-up Californian version of our very own Nick and Tim, but with added pictures, cheesy galaxy models and Mintos. Dr. Phil has already got his first few episodes up, and they're well worth checking out, although they are a bit slow to download. Next up is Astronomy Cast, which has not one but two episodes considering extraterrestrial intelligence. The first talks about the Drake Equation, which is basically an attempt to work out the probability of finding life out there in the universe, and it tends to be quite positive about finding life. The second episode asks, if life is fairly common, where is it all? Pamela and Fraser have a pretty good discussion about the possible reasons that we might be completely unaware of it, even if alien life is pretty common in our galaxy. So, if there is life out there, perhaps it'll need a planet to live on. And that nicely brings me to NASACast, and a video episode which talks about recent observations by the Spitzer Space Telescope. Now, the observations that it did are pretty amazing, as they were able to work out the chemical composition of the atmospheres of two planets which are orbiting other stars. Now I think that's a really cool measurement and there are some nice animations on their video podcast to explain exactly how they did it. Now unfortunately the results seem to show that these particular planets are pretty extreme places and they certainly wouldn't be habitable for us. So finally and a bit closer to home, the University of Texas McDonald Observatory's Stardate podcast has two episodes about a 1930s Earth-based explorer who stumbled across a meteor impact crater in Saudi Arabia whilst looking for a lost city. Those episodes are called Journey to Waba, and we'll put links to them, and all the other podcasts I've just mentioned, in the March show notes. So, if you hear any interesting astronomy podcasts in the next month, just let us know via the website at www.jodcast.net. Back to you, Dave. Thanks, Stuart. And with that, so ends the show, I'm afraid. It just remains for me to thank Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, Ian Morrison, Stuart Lowe, and Megan Argo. I'd also like to thank Steve Anderson, one of our American listeners, for giving us the intro and outro. He wrote them uh, as inspired by law and order. And of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any copyright pertaining to that program. So thanks to Steve Anderson for recording the intro and to Seth Adamshare and Laura Post for providing us with the voices for the outro. 
And so with that, this is David Alt signing off. So until next month, all the best. I'm still not sure we did the right thing, Jack. It may take 248 years, but we both know Pluto will come around eventually. No, it's never been about Pluto. It's about all those other cold, dead renegades out there. If we let just one of them call itself a planet, would They'll all want to be planets. Mm, just like Cersei, 200 years ago. <laughs>